quick testimony about God's mercy and his love. By now, most of you know I've been on this journey of health challenges for a long time. Um, I had had surgery for cancer two and a half years ago, having great PET scans for years. And then in November, a PET scan showed that the cancer had spread to my abdomen and uh, it had moved to stage four, which is defined as incurable. And uh, I was given maybe a year to live at that point. Um, an important update this week, um, I had a CAT scan or a PET scan done last week, and uh, there were, had been two trouble spots in my body. There's a tumor in my abdomen and a lymph node in my groin that was affected with cancer. And um, I've been undergoing chemotherapy for four months now. Well, this week they did another scan. The lymph node is completely normal. The tumor in my abdomen is significantly smaller and has significantly less metabolic activity. And there are no new spots anywhere in my body of cancer. So praise God. I'm going to go through two more months of chemo just to, as my oncologist said, consolidate the gains. But I believe God is healing me, and I believe he's going to complete the work in me, and all the glory goes to him. But nothing is certain. Um, I, I want to read you, first of all, a passage from First Chronicles um, before I talk about the uncertainty of it. Uh, David is singing a song of thanks to God because the, the ark has just been brought back to Jerusalem. Here's what he says, and I, I offer this testimony to you. Oh, give thanks to the Lord. Call upon his name. Make known his deeds among the people. Sing to him. Sing praise to him. Tell of all his wondrous works. Glory in his holy name. Let the hearts of those who seek the Lord rejoice. Remember the wondrous works that he has done. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Tell of his salvation from day to day. Declare his glory among the nations. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. Oh, give thanks to the Lord for he is good. His steadfast love endures forever. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. And then it says, And all the people said, Amen, and praised the Lord. <clears throat> You'll remember last Sunday we heard a sermon about vapor. And so there's a, a cautionary tale in this healing, since none of us gets out of this alive. And uh, that is that life is a vapor. It's over very quickly, and none of us knows when it's going to end. So we always need to add the condition, though. We remember what the condition was? If the Lord wills, if it's God's pleasure, then we can do such and such. So all any of us has is today. And that's not some theoretical construct. It's real. All we have is March 29th, 2015. That's it. And I want to read a quote from Frederick Beekner, one of my favorite writers, about today. Today is a moment of light surrounded on all sides by darkness and oblivion. In the entire history of the universe, let alone your own history, there's never been another day just like it, and there will never be another just like it again. It is the point to which all your yesterdays have been leading since the hour of your birth. Today is the point from which all your tomorrows will proceed until the hour of your death. If you are aware of how precious today is, you could hardly live through it. 
unless you are aware of how precious it is, you can hardly be said to be living at all. The point is to see it for what it is, because today will be gone before you know it. All other days have either disappeared into darkness and oblivion, or have not yet emerged from them. Today is the only day there is. May God teach us to number our days. Amen. Amen. If you would bow your head in prayer with me in anticipation of hearing the word of God. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity that your grace has provided us to gather together this handful of blood-bought souls made so by the work of the Holy Spirit, taking the work of Calvary and making it real to our heart, regenerating us from the deadness of sin and setting us in right relationship with our Heavenly Father. We are adopted heirs of the testament and will of Jesus Christ our Lord. We are adopted sons and daughters of our Heavenly Father and we rejoice in our union, our family relationship with the Godhead today. These thoughts are too high for mere human minds to comprehend. So we ask Holy Spirit to continue your work in our hearts, leading us and guiding us into all truth. Take this time of the reading, the proclamation, and the hearing of your scripture and write it on the tables of our souls so that we might not soon forget and that we might add to our faith understanding and line upon line, precept upon precept, you might awaken our intellect, our affections, and conform our will to the truths that are contained in your holy word. If this prayer is answered, it will be because and only because the Holy Spirit is pleased to use a frail vessel, a sinner like myself, and pleased to open ears, unstopping them from the distractions of sin and making our heart pliable on the potter's wheel. Thank you for your gracious work in all of this. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Praise the Lord. What a privilege to celebrate today, another Lord's Day, the resurrection as we ought and do every week. But this morning, as it is traditional within the church historically to note on the calendar, maybe with a little special attention, the work that took place on the week and the days and the moments surrounding Calvary, This morning I've taken the opportunity to take as a theme for this message the triumphal entry of Jesus Christ, uh, what we've come to know as Palm Sunday, on that glorious day when he arrived on the foal of the donkey, fulfilling testimony, fulfilling prior prophecy in Zechariah chapter 9, and recorded for us in all four Gospels. With that introduction, I invite you to turn to John chapter 12, and we'll read in a moment the record of this event in John's Gospel. John chapter 12. In a moment, I'll also ask you to stand. Let me give you a title while you're turning there. This morning's message is called Seeds of Triumph. Seeds of Triumph, a little play on words there. Triumphal entry is the term that we've given or the title given to this section, maybe on your Bible's title heading there. The triumphal entry of Christ when He enters in what is something like a coronation ceremony although it's juxtaposed in the humility of arriving on this humble beast. 
There's also a concept within the context in John chapter 12 of seeds. Christ compares His own work and life, which we'll explore in a moment, to that of a seed being planted in the ground. And upon that death, as it were, it produces fruit. Fruit far eclipsing, far beyond multiples, beyond the mass of that original seed itself. And that's a concept that we will pick up in our message today. So now if you're able, stand with me and let us read together John chapter 12, verses 12 through 16. John 12, 12 through 16. And here we have, The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet Him, crying out, Hosanna! Blessed is He who comes in the name of the Lord! even the king of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughters of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. The Gospel of John records the triumphal entry of Jesus Christ into Jerusalem on the week of Passover, just prior to His going to the cross to suffer for yours and my sin through in Jesus Christ today. The Gospel of John records these events that are so prominent in their historical truth and in their redemptive emphasis and priority in the life of God's purposes or in the life course of every believer and in the history of God's purposes for all of time and from the beginning of time and even before time began in the heart and the mind of the Godhead. These events are recorded alongside the last events at the close of Jesus' public ministry. That is to say, as Jesus is giving His final words publicly to those who have heard the message of the kingdom, we also have these prophetic events being fulfilled before us in the record, namely His entry into Jerusalem on this humble donkey. This chapter of the gospel narrative is condensed. This segment in the narrative in the Record is fully saturated, however, with potent meaning and significance. In John 12, verse 24, there's an analogy that Christ Himself uh, uses to describe the events and the events that would follow this moment in the Gospel. And here we have these words. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies It remains alone, but if it dies, it bears much fruit. Truly, truly, again, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Lord willing, next week we will consider more specifically the fruit portion of this seed analogy. That is, the truth of the resurrection, when it became real to those who bore it who on their lips in apostolic evangelism in the book of Acts, we will discover the fruit of the reality of the resurrection in the hearts and in the profession of the disciples moving forward. But today, let's consider 
what Christ means when He says grain of wheat. There's a picture here of a seed. This picture or illustration, it could, be, could apply to a number of things, certainly with respect to His ministry and mission. Though Jesus came humbly, and though He was comely, and his, even by His outward appearance was not much to look upon, as the Word of God says. And even though He did not take His abode in kings' palaces, but lived as a commoner traveling, a sojourner to and fro, in common apparel with the common people, sharing the message of the kingdom. Even though He came even in this event, in this record, as we read, into Jerusalem, not on a majestic horse with a conquering train of heroes behind them, with the accolades of the whole nation having just conquered a warring city-state, but no, He came on the foal of a donkey. Yet in all of these examples, Christ and His ministry and mission is like a seed, humble, small, unassuming. But when it is planted in the seedbed and the soil of history, it will burst forth into new life and into powerful prophetic fulfillment and it will reap for God's bounty and glory and into His barns a fruitful harvest that is yet piling into the silos of glory, if you will, even to this day. And you and me are testimony to that truth if you are in Him today. The concept of seed, this analogy of seed, is additionally helpful to understand the history of revealed truth. We go back to what is sometimes called the first mention of the gospel in Genesis 3.15. And there's this seed, if you will, of truth. And we remember there that the prophecy comes by way of judgment on the serpent. That the seed of the woman would bruise his head, but he would bruise her heel. And in the record, this very event that is prophesied in Genesis is about to take place millennia later. Yet it's unfolding. It was just a whisper, just a hint, just a concept, just a seed. Now it's unfolding in the history of redemption, in the gospel record with greater and greater power and detail for those who have eyes to see and those who have ears to hear. Thirdly, the picture of seed is powerful when we consider, even in the immediate context of this record, what is present in seed form, if you will, around the text of John chapter 12. And these uh, observations that will shape the context or shape the structure of the message today, we will seek to draw them out to, under, to underscore the significance of Palm Sunday's memory, namely the triumphal entry of Jesus Christ to Jerusalem just before the Passover and just before Calvary, which made possible the Passover of judgment over yours and my sin if the blood of Jesus Christ is there shed upon the doorposts of our heart. One more note of introduction. I'd like to introduce to you a little riddle, an illustration. So children, listen up if you're in the service today. It's my son Jack's 11th birthday today, so happy birthday, Jack, if you listen to this on the recording. Jack's birthday is today. He's 11 years old. Imagine with me, kids, because I know I remember being a child. That was the most important day in all of life. You mark that year with, or that one day a year with bated breath. You wait for it. You write your list. What would I want for my birthday? So, kids, imagine someone your age 
at a birthday party around the time when Jesus was walking the earth. And they got several, maybe little gifts, if that was their tradition at the time. They got one interesting gift. This gift came in a little envelope, say a folded piece of leather, stitched along the sides. And they open it up, and then they look at their parents, and they look back in, look at their parents. There's nothing in here. Mom or dad says, look closer, son. Look closer, daughter. You stare into that little leather pouch, and you see in the bottom, is this my present? And you pull out the seed, a seed, no bigger than, say, a little flake of oatmeal. A single piece of oatmeal is the size of this seed. And, of course, you're tempted just to throw it away. Who wants a little seed for his birthday? But there's some instructions also in the envelope. You pull out those instructions and they read as follows. This little seed is not very big at all. It would take 123,000 of them to equal the weight of a single pound. But within this seed is a surprise. Plant this seed in an environment that has a moderate temperature, pretty nice, all year round. Make sure it's a moist environment. Make sure it's an area of the country that gets plenty of rain in the wintertime. And the soil is seasonally saturated by runoff from a mountain range. And just wait and water and watch. And through the years, you will discover a great mystery. And the riddle for us this morning, which we'll complete at the end of this message, is guess what that plant will look like if we found it today, 2,000 years later. Let's consider in this message three contextual elements of the triumphal entry narrative that are presented to us in the text in something like a seed form that is seemingly insignificant at first glance. But when we identify the purpose why they are planted next to this story, it can bloom into a garden of understanding. So here's a heading. Consider the seed of, first of all, leading events. Consider the seed of leading events. Simply events leading up to the triumphal entry in the context here in John chapter 11 and John chapter 12. Secondly, let's consider ancient prophecy. Consider the seed of ancient prophecy. What was planted in the hearts and minds of the faithful hundreds of years before and how it's blossoming into truth and revelation beyond imagination in the record. And thirdly, let's consider the seed of divine glory. Hints at God's purpose that are referred to three times in the record. First of all, in considering the leading events, the seed of leading events, what might, we, what, excuse me, what might we learn from the record leading up to John 12 and the triumphal entry? First of all, I would submit to you that there are three things foreshadowed in the text, in the events that lead up to Jesus coming into Jerusalem for the Passover. And the first one that I want to give you is the passion of Christ foreshadowed. When I say passion, I mean Christ's death, His betrayal, and His burial. The things in His humility that He suffered, the cross, and the events that surrounded it. In the record, we read the following in chapter 11, verse 38. It says, Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. 
It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, Take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead for days, dead four days. Jesus said to her, Do I not tell you that if you believed, did I not tell you that if you believed you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out. His hands and feet were bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to him, unbind him and let him go. Also in the record we read in John chapter 12 what immediately preceded, some events that immediately preceded the triumphal entry. It says six days, verse 1, before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at the table. Mary, therefore, took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, why was this, anointment, this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this, not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Jesus said, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. The poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. When the large crowds of Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. We're skipping around just a bit in the context here, but you'll note that there is a preparation, even in the context of these stories. There are the events of Calvary foreshadowed. For instance, again, in 1150, nor do you understand that it is better, this is Caiaphas speaking, he's, in spite of himself, prophesying what Jesus would soon do. He is an unbelieving high priest, yet he says that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that, for the, whole, that, not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. And not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. Verse 53, so from that day on they made plans to put him to death. Consider the seed of the leading events prior to Jesus' triumphal entry. The passion of Christ is foreshadowed in these texts that I've just read. Jesus' death and the sovereign circumstances around it are clear in this record. Death of Christ did not come as a total surprise, even in the pages of the gospel, for those who could see it foretold and foreshadowed in the record. 
You know, the unbelievers, and this is a great point of application, have made the charge that the disciples, after the fact, made up all these things and stories, but really they just stole his body and so on. Well, these skeptical theories would be much easier, even for you know, a critical mind to believe, aside from those, or even if you didn't hold the Word of God as true, it would be a lot easier to believe if the record didn't prefigure the death of Jesus Christ before it even came, and if Jesus hadn't spoken about the events prior to, not just in the Gospels, but through His prophets throughout all of history, as we will also read later in this message from Zechariah chapter 9. This is according to the eternal plan and decree of Almighty God that He would be crucified on this day. And the events even leading up to His triumphal entry foreshadow His passion, His death and the sovereign circumstances around it. In Caiaphas' testimony, we have this truth that God will use the uh, the unsuspecting sinner and his sin to turn around for his glory mighty deeds that will serve the redemption of his people. No sin, in one sense you could say, is worse than the very worst of all, the crucifixion of Christ himself at the hands of wicked and violent men. Yet these sinners served God's ultimate purpose of slaying the once-for-all sacrifice to make propitiation for yours and my sin. Here Caiaphas is prophesying again, unbeknownst to him in some ways, the significance of the events that would soon take place. Thus God is pleased to use sinners, prophets, the gospel record, the testimony of His kingdom through His own Son, and many other means to declare that these events that are unfolding before us in the gospel record have been written It is a history that has been written before time began, and now it is blossoming forth like a seed bursting into revelatory life. Secondly, we see in this record, among the texts I just gave you, Jesus' own betrayal foreshadowed. Money is an issue, and Judas is a character on the stage, and he's upset. And he is not, and disingenuously so. He says, this money should have been given to the poor. What is he really saying? Well, he's saying a lie. He's speaking a lie. He wants this money to be put into the coffers so he can steal it. This is a man who worshipped mammon, that is money. And this is a man who later would sell his Messiah for 30 pieces of silver. Interesting note to write down. The price that Judas estimated this anointment, this costly, precious ointment that was poured out on the feet of Jesus and wiped with the hair of Mary in this worshipful act, this ointment was worth approximately three times, according to Judas' own estimate, what he was willing to betray his master for. A denarii, or he said in the record, Was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and used and given to the poor? The 30 pieces of silver were just a third of of that amount. He said this not because he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief. And Jesus rebuked him. And later this man would commit suicide, not in repentance, but in remorse for selling his Savior for a third the amount he wished was going into the coffers to pad his own pocket in this event. 
Thus we have the betrayal of Christ foreshadowed here. And we see, don't we, the dramatic uh, contrast of a sinner who will exploit a perfect, sinless, innocent man for his own personal gain and who will interrupt the most amazing worshipful act, one that Jesus said will be testified to for generations and indeed we are fulfilling his own prophecy today as we exalt this woman for the gracious and the beautiful uh, honoring of her Messiah that she faithfully uh, exhibited in John's gospel. Yet we see prefigured here, on the other hand, what the sin of every one of us looks like before Christ gives us a new heart. We look like Judas on the inside, who would sell out our Savior for a third of the money we wished would go into the money bag so that we could steal it for ourselves. Taking every opportunity to exploit the gifts that God gives, the world He graciously blessed us with, the sunshine that kisses our face in the morning to serve ourselves. And thus, in the gospel record, we see even in the story, the contrasts and the dramatically, dramatic illustrations of the truth of each and our souls in our own sin. We also see resurrection foreshadowed in the record here. Well, before I say that, let me just briefly mention burial. Christ says, in this record, leave her alone that she may keep it for the day of my burial. And so we have an association of these spices now in anticipation of Christ's own burial where bodies would be treated in a similar manner. We also have resurrection foreshadowed. I read to you the story of Christ's power evident in the raising of Lazarus. Christ was asked earlier in John's gospel after he cleansed the temple in chapter 2, verses 18 and 19, what authority do you have to show for your audacious actions, coming in and sweeping away the money changers, cracking a whip over their heads and declaring, my house shall be house of prayer. And the authority, the testimony to his authority that Christ offers those that question him is his own power to take up his own life after he is killed and just three days later bursts the tomb and the stone is rolled away. Now here's more evidence in the record of Christ's own authority. It's one thing for a man to say such a thing. It's another way for him to demonstrate it. But prior to Christ demonstrating it in his own body, he demonstrated it in the body of Lazarus. Jesus said to those who were looking on, paralyzed with grief, that their loved one had been taken in their minds prematurely from them. Verse 39 of chapter 11, he said, Take away the stone. Christ, before he moved his own stone, moved another stone. He moved the stone away from the grave of Lazarus, and he commanded him to come forth. By this time there was an odor, they said. He's been dead for four days, Jesus said to her. Did I not tell you that if you believe you would see the glory of God? As they took away the stone, Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. When he said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips, his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to him, unbind him and let him go. The story is so similar to Christ's own resurrection. 
Later in John's Gospel, we find his own burial garments folded nicely, laying there next to where his body used to lay. The stone rolled away, and the distraught mourners, hearing the testimony of the angel, he's not here, he is risen. And if they had taken this moment as a moment to build their faith, and the testimony from his own words that he would raise his body, this temple, he said, in three days, they would never have had to worry, never have had to fear. Mary sees what she supposes to be the gardener, and he says a word or two, and her eyes are opened. She says, Rabboni, he is alive. Ascension is foreshadowed in the leading events. The next day, verse chapter 12, verse 12, the next day the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. You'll remember one of our favorite points of redemptive historical reference. In Daniel 7, there is that prophecy that one would rise before the Ancient of Days and would receive a kingdom and a throne. throne. And in the heavenlies, we see pictured there in prophetic form the ascension where Jesus literally ascends before the Father to receive His kingdom upon His finished work at Calvary. Well, that event is foreshadowed in the triumphal entry. They herald, they announce, they proclaim, and they worship and extol Christ as King as He arrives in this moment. It's as if it were a coronation service and... Uh, and appropriately so. And so thus, in the leading events of this moment, we have the work of Calvary foreshadowed in the miracles, in the works, and in the situations that surrounded this time in Christ's life and ministry. His passion, His death, His betrayal, His burial, His resurrection, and His ascension. All these things are like seeds planted in and around this event. And when we see them in the, broader, in the broader context of the Scriptures, they begin to blossom and unfold in amazing glory. Just like that bulb, that ugly bulb that is planted in a garden that brings forth the lily in due season. Secondly, this morning, considering seeds of triumph, Consider the seed of leading events. We've just done that. Also consider in the text the seed of ancient prophecy. Uh, Keep a finger in John 12. Turn to Zechariah 9. In John uh, 12, we have already read. I'll just remind you as you're turning to Zechariah. Verse 14, And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming sitting on a donkey's colt. says in verse 16, His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Christ was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about Him and had been done to Him. For further study, just mark in your notes Luke chapter 24 if you want a glorious record of when this took place, that is, when it dawned on the disciples in their own understanding and appreciation of what was testified beforehand. You'll remember that story. It's the disciple, two disciples accompanying Christ on the road to Emmaus. 
And all along that journey, as they walk along their path to their destination, Christ leads them not just to their place of lodging, but He leads them through the Scriptures. Passages like Isaiah 53, no doubt. Passages like Zechariah 9, no doubt. And passages after passages that talk about who Messiah was, what He would do, how He would arrive, how He would conquer the last enemy death, how He would rise again, how He would ascend before the Father and ever rule and reign over His kingdom until such time as the new heavens and new earth come as the exclamation point on His great work in redemptive history. All these things began to dawn on the disciples in the course of time. But let's go to one of those passages now in the Old Testament that we with them can appreciate in newness of light as the Holy Spirit gives us understanding and as the Scriptures record. So Zechariah 9, will read verses 9 through 13. And the prophet declares, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion! Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem! Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation! Is he humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey? I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. As for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. Return to your stronghold, O prisoners of hope. Today I declare that I will restore to you double. For I have bent Judah as my bow. I have made Ephraim its arrow. I will stir up your sons, O Zion, against your sons, O Greece, and wield you like a warrior's sword. When these words were first prophesied, a bit of context for you. It would have been around the time, or uh, shortly after, the second month of the beginning of the rebuilding of the temple in Jerusalem. You'll remember the exile, where God's people were moved to Babylon, and all of the inhabitants of Judah, many of them had to relocate. They had been conquered. Their city, their dreams had been destroyed. God had been gracious to them. He had preserved according to His means, declared in Jeremiah 29, a people for Himself. They had prospered and done well and incurred favor in the city by uh, continuing to have children, living in faith and hope of what would come in the future, planting gardens, seeking the welfare of the city, and so on. God raised up, according to His prophetic word, a king who had favor on His people, Cyrus, and released some of them to return to their own land and to reestablish the constitution of their nation there, and to rebuild the temple. And no doubt for these people at this time, this would have been a sigh of glorious relief after years and years in exile. And I'm sure to a man they would have thought, this is the apex of our history as a covenant people of God. Look what we are doing, teaching their children. Consider the significance of this moment. We rebuild these walls. We rebuild this temple. Then comes the prophet, Zechariah. And he brings a message, as nearly all of God's prophets did, 
in the context of the significance of the now and the significance of the future. Don't sell yourselves too short. Don't forget that this is just a milestone in the unfolding, blossoming seed of God's redemptive purposes. This temple, Zechariah says in so many words, will be transcended by another. This sacrificial order that's being reinstituted will be transcended by another who will render it forever obsolete in his own blood. But this truth will come to you in surprising ways. It will come as what? As a seed. Humble, small, unassuming, unimpressive. But it will be planted in the soil of God's redemptive purposes. And it will burst forth into redemptive newness of life in the form of Jesus of Nazareth, who will enter in his pre-coronation service on the foal of a lowly donkey. will be greeted by those who lay their cloaks down, and these are probably the commoners. In prior years, we've studied how important the cloak was to the common individual. It was against the law in the Mosaic Code for a, uh, a lender, a banker, to take as collateral overnight that, overnight that cloak. Why? Because it was too important and too precious to the owner. It represented, quite literally, nearly everything that they owned. It was their shelter for many of them. It represented a fortune if they had to buy another one. And here are these people laying down all they had before this lowly beast. And I'm telling you, there's only one person in all of history who could lawfully, who could lawfully take his beast of burden across those cloaks. And it was he who was without sin. It was he who was prophesied in Zechariah 9. It was he who was the second person of the Trinity. It was he whom all of creation had been groaning and waiting for. It was Jesus Christ. And he appeared on that day. And Zechariah 9, that seed of prophecy, began to unfold and blossoming revelation. Zechariah begins his ministry two months after the exiles return, and he tells them that more is on the horizon. They no doubt assume this monumental occasion represents the historical zenith of their people, but Zechariah is faithful to give this prophecy and to look forward to a point in the future and even beyond the triumphal entry of Jesus Christ. You see, there is an immediate fulfillment of this prophecy when Christ our King came on this lowly beast and was crowned, uh, so to speak, by the people saying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Again, that glorious record we've read this morning and John read to us in our call to worship text. There was that immediate fulfillment, but there was more. There was the consequence of what this would mean for the future. For thousands, we know now, of years after the fact. We read in verse 10, The effects of this moment, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. This was a powerful moment. Because at this time in redemptive history, we have one small obscure corner of the Near East with a small band rebuilding a much smaller temple, largely unknown to the greater pagan nations. But this circumstance would change. 
Even when Christ came, His ministry was limited. He said, I came to the sons of Israel. But that circumstance would change. There was, a com- there was coming a day where the message of the kingdom would be born on the backs of the apostles and the prophets who would succeed Christ, the believers who would echo what He had done, and it would go to Judea, to Samaria, to the uttermost parts of the earth. Throughout the book of Isaiah, the coastlands are called to witness the future unfolding of the seed of God's revelation into blossoming truth for all nations. We go back and we see the seed of the covenant promise to the future Gentiles, even to Abraham himself. You will be a blessing to all nations. And we see that seed of covenant promise to all peoples planted right here in Zechariah 9's prophecy. This rebuilt temple represents something that will be fulfilled in a person and in a work of a Messiah that will be for all peoples. And he shall rule from sea to sea from the river to the ends of the earth. The blossoming unfolding of these truths takes even further manifest form in the book of Revelation where we see through the eyes of John's vision the populations of heaven who have gathered from every tribe, every tongue, and every nation a representative people who fulfill Zechariah 9 because of Christ, worshiping and glorifying the Father forever and ever on account of this prophecy, this seed blossoming into redemptive life. The ancient prophecy of Zechariah 9, fulfilled in John chapter 12, is being fulfilled even today. There's an immediate, a consequential, and an ultimate fulfillment. His, that is Christ's kingdom, has no borders, the Word of God declares. Not limited anymore to an ethnic people, but floods across like the waters cover the sea, every nation, tribe, and tongue, until He finally gleans for Himself every one of the elect into the storehouses of heaven, and the rest of the naysayers are judged on that final day. And thus, in His legacy of reconciliation and peace, He is eternally praised by the hosts of heaven as Yahweh Sabaoth, Lord of hosts. We contrast Christ's legacy, His continuing legacy, and His future legacy with anything that the people and these records had ever known, and we see how His truth bursts forth from seed form into a garden of glorious abundance. Finally, this morning... Let us consider, planted alongside the story of the triumphal entry, the seed of divine glory. There's a seed of leading events that speak and foreshadow, speak of the gospel and foreshadow the work of Christ. There's a seed of ancient prophecy that we see bursting forth, blooming into fruition and fulfillment and continuing even today. And then thirdly, there is divine glory, three times mentioned in the text In John chapter 12, we've read it, but I'll read it again. Verse 16, His disciples did not understand those things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about Him and had been done to Him. So we notice here that there's a connection between the understanding of the disciples and the glory 
glorification, that is, of Jesus Christ. Later in verse 23, I'll back up to 20, uh, verse 20, because this also, just as an aside, is fulfillment of Zechariah. Notice how Gentiles are inquiring already about the Christ. Now, among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. I'm told there in the original language, this is more than just uh, Hellenized Jews or displaced Jews. More than likely, the language indicates these are true Gentiles, in that sense, perhaps God-fearers, who are curious about the message of the gospel already reaching their ears. Already the newsreel has picked up this story. And so these came to Philip in verse 21, who is from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Already the Gentiles are knocking on the door of redemption. Verse 22, Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus, and Jesus answered them. Verse 23, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. And again, the context of our analogy, the title of this sermon, Seeds of Triumph, comes to view. Let's take the application verses as well, 25, 26. Whoever loves his life loses it. Whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will be my, ser- there will be my servant, or there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. There is the second mention of glory. And then the third mention in the verses following. Verse 27, the Lord continues to speak. Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowds that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. And others said, an angel has spoke to him. Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. Notice, there are three references to the glory of God and the glory of Christ unfolding within these events. First of all, the connection to Christ's glory and our, if we put ourselves in the shoes of the disciple, understanding. That is to say, as Christ appears by the Spirit's softening of our hearts and awakening, us to tr- and awakening us to truth, as Christ appears glorious to our eyes and our affections, so goes our understanding of the Scriptures and His great work. Listen to me this morning. If these words that I am reading to you this morning or most days when you read them, if you happen to pick up your Bible, And they just seem like any other ordinary piece of information. I would beg you to cry out that the Holy Spirit would reveal to your heart, you individually, the glory of Christ. Who is Jesus? Is He precious to you? Is He glorious to you? And as that prayer is answered, another prayer will be answered alongside you will begin to understand Zechariah chapter 9. You will begin to understand 
what was prophesied of old, what was fulfilled in the Gospels. The Bible, in short, will become your favorite book. You will read the Bible not just as an entertaining volume, but as food for the soul. And you will starve if you lack its pages for any length of time. This will happen. How do I know? Because the Lord Himself has prophesied it and declared it from His Word. The hour has come for the Son to be glorified. Jesus was glorified when He was. This promise became fulfilled. His disciples remembered and these things were written that... Uh, remember that these things were written about him and had been done to him. And as Luke 24 records, they became so filled with this revelation that they went to their own deaths willingly and joyfully. Christ had said in verse 25, whoever loves his life loses it. Whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Well, what can possibly give you the grace to uh, follow that command, to follow Christ, that is, to the death? perhaps even to the hatred of your own friends and family. The charge in verse 26, If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I, where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Where is Christ asking his disciples to follow him? He's asking them to follow him even unto death. How can we do so? We can do so realizing for ourselves by a sovereign act of the Holy Spirit, awakening our hearts to truth, that Christ is the glorious Messiah, that He is God in the flesh, and that His death was the most powerful act to redeem His people. And so we have, need not fear anything like death, for heaven's sake. It's like a door that opens into palatial expanses of glory and peace and joyful uh, heavenly riches. That, that's what death is for us. And it may well be a tool that God also uses in your life should He call you home under the threat of persecution or as a martyr or call you home by just the throes of this life. That very moment is one that you can follow Christ to with joy if His glory is your reward. Thus there is a connection between Christ's glory and the understanding of the Scriptures and the revealed truth of what that seed represents. There's a connection between the cost, uh, it is the death that Christ paid and His own glory. Isn't it interesting that Christ says, the hour has come for the Son to be glorified. And He follows that with an example of something that must die. Why is this the case? Why did it serve God's glory and why is it a glorious act that Christ, the Son of God, would suffer at the hands of sinful man? Such Such a gruesome, horrible death. What's because that planted seed, as it were, must die, in a sense, so that it can be resurrected, in a sense, and burst forth into more life and more fruit and more reward than a seed alone could ever represent. Divine glory is connected to understanding the cost and finally the covenant of redemption. This is one term I want to give you this morning. It comes from theological language, the covenant of redemption. The covenant of redemption is simply the pact of agreement. The agreement that is the promise made between the members of the Trinity from all eternity where the triune God, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit 
join themselves and their purposes together in the plan of redemption. And we see evidence of this fact unfolding before our eyes in John 12, 27. Father, say, or now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. For this purpose I have come to this hour. This is no surprise to Christ. He and the Father have had many conversations, if you will, about this very day. Verse 28, he says, Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven, I have glorified it, I will glorify it again. And you see this glorious exchange, this communication, we're eavesdropping here on the Trinity as God the Father talks to the Son. And there we see evidence of this eternal covenant of redemption now unfolding before our very eyes. And it is not first and foremost central to the text why has God spoken? He's not speaking only or even, exclu- or even primarily to console His Son on His way to Calvary. Christ tells us why. God the Father is speaking from the loudspeaker of heaven. Verse 30, Jesus answered, This voice has come for your sake, not mine. This voice from heaven is meant to send a shudder of, of joy and revelation up yours and my spine that God the Father and God the Son are perfectly unified in the work of Calvary. And the Holy Spirit can take this truth and apply it to your heart. Remember last week, Joe Reed was preaching to us from James chapter 4, I believe, verse 13 through 15. He talked about the secret and the revealed will of God. Let us thank the Lord this season, this moment, this Lord's day. Let us thank Him that His work of redemption did not remain a secret, but this covenant of redemption indeed has been revealed to us, so powerfully so, that it was heard as it were, as thunder in the ears of the onlookers at this moment in the record when a voice from heaven says, I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. I would reference for future study a prior message that we preached in 2013, December 21st, Heaven's Loudspeaker. That's a study of the times, the rare times in all of history where an audible voice speaks from heaven in the ears of mere humans, the revealed will of God. In closing this morning, I wonder if any of you have the answer to the riddle. Remember the question? So it's your birthday, you receive a gift, You open it up, it's a seed the size of a piece of oatmeal. You're living at the time that Jesus walked the earth. You remember the conditions, if you plant that seed, the answer to that riddle, if you could go back to that seed today, you would see a 2,000-year-old redwood tree, a giant sequoia, and that tree could well be 20 feet in diameter and 350 feet feet tall. Look at your pinky fingernail. That seed is smaller than your pinky fingernail. And when it is planted under the right conditions and given God's will and timing, that seed bursts forth into what is arguably the largest living thing on planet earth. As wide as a city street and as tall as as the Statue of Liberty. And that illustration 
is nothing compared to the power of the seed of the gospel that appears to us unveiled in minute form in the older pages of Scripture and is revealed with a flourishing of glory in the new and even more so as you experience Christ blooming in the soil of your own heart. Seeds of triumph. Turn with me in closing to one more passage this morning. To Matthew chapter 13. Matthew 13. Another message along this theme was on June 22nd, 2014. If you wanted to go back and listen to that one as well, it was called Kingdom Transhistorical. Talking about the power of the kingdom of God transcending all other kingdoms. Well, there's an analogy employed to describe the gospel in this way in Matthew 13, and it comes to us in the form of this parable. Matthew 13, 31. He put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of a mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all seeds, but when it has grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. The Word of God tells us, through the mouth of the Son of God, when He preached the message of His kingdom, that His kingdom, His truth, His gospel is like a seed. This seed that is tiny and produces this huge planting is just like the kingdom of God. And here we are today celebrating with the millions and millions of souls bought and paid for by the atoning blood of Jesus' sacrifice that immediately followed His triumphal entry, that moment where the Lamb of God arrived in Jerusalem on the foal of a donkey some 2,000 plus years ago. This man who was God, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's close in prayer. Oh, Heavenly Father, we are so thankful for the truth of Your Holy Word. I pray that You would impress the reality of the revelation of what is planted like a seed and bursting forth into new life in each and every one of our hearts. I pray that if there are any here whose soil is hardened and resistant to the planting of that seed, that You would till it with the titanium plowshare of the Spirit's sovereign work in the heart. I pray that if there are any thorns of life, Lord Jesus, that would render that soil inhospitable to the seed, that you would pull them up. I pray that you would remove stones. I pray, Lord, that the sun would not scorch and wither, and birds would not steal the seed of your word from any one of us who fellowship here today but that you would prepare the soil of our heart so that the seeds of triumph of the kingdom of God would produce fruit in our hearts 30, 60, and 100-fold to the glory of the Lamb that was slain and to the glory of He, the Lamb, Jesus Christ, who is risen and who is ascended and now ever lives to make intercession for us at the right hand of the Father and is worshipped and will be worshipped forever by the creatures that surround the throne and by all of us blood-bought saints who will join them soon one day. Thank you, Lord, for this promise. May it be our greatest treasure. In the name of Jesus.
Amen.